0: This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Uh, Busting her nose and being a good sport about it, and recovering and participating the rest of the day, and I was was saying, you know, like, man, we come up with these games, and you guys find ways to hurt yourself, and then we come up with a game that is like, everyone hurts themselves because you're blindfolded, and... I really was thinking, like, oh, okay, they'll, they'll know, like, you know, you're blindfolded, you know, like, be careful. And then the game started, and Nicholas just took off running and hit the front row and just flipped over it. And I was like, oh, no, they don't know. Oh, no, <laughs> like, they don't get it. <laughs> but Molly was a great sport, and then Jude, for uh, dislocating his finger while playing gaga ball, and then finishing the game and winning, so. I told him, you know, that is some serious bravery and a serious lack of intelligence. So that's just, can't have it all, man. You can't have it all, you know? And then uh, a big thanks to Dr. Worley for relocating the finger. Uh, Yes. And for doing it without telling Jude he was about to do it. He just did it. He just said, let me see what you got there. Okay. I was like, oh, even now, I just got like a little dizzy thinking about that. (sighs) I don't do well with that stuff. I was telling people like, I don't like that. And they're like, well, that's kind of standard what you do. I don't care. I don't like it. Okay, let me know what you're doing. I have a memory of uh, my stepdad was a dentist, and when I first went to him, I had a cavity, and he was like, hey, open your mouth up, big and wide, and I opened my mouth up, and he was like, his, he had his back to me, and he was doing something, and he spun around and gave me a shot in my mouth without any warning, and I just, ah! It's like a little warning. He was like, warning doesn't help. It's like, yeah, it does help me, actually. I like knowing what's happening, and... When a needle comes flying into my mouth, I don't like that, you know. So, but thanks, Doctor Worley. Sorry, I went off rails there. Thank you for for helping there. Uh, Number two, uh, I I said this this morning, but I'm gonna please. I'm gonna reiterate this. Please pick up your trash. So the uh, this this is our biggest group we've ever had at Advance, and the folks who work at Fort Bluff mentioned it twice to us today and they said we've never had a problem with you guys before but can you please tell folks to pick up their trash we found it on the football field and there's just trash being left around so please pick up your trash we want to uh we want to honor christ and how we walk through advance and we want to be diligent and um we want to be uh do do a good job in how we take care of their facility so please pick up your trash and then finally Before Steve comes comes tonight, I wanted to recognize and honor our graduates tonight. So if you graduated this spring, could you just stand in your spa? I'm going to have you stand for just a couple minutes, but go ahead and stand up our graduates. And I'm going to... I'm going to give you guys a moment to, to thank God for them. I'm going to pray for them. And you guys stay standing, sorry. you got to stay standing so we can see you. This won't take long, but I was thinking about you today, and this is cheesy, but I've never done this before, but I brought, I brought a baton up here with me. <laughs> Even as I say it, I'm like, oh. But it, made me, it did make me think about Relay and the mission of relay is really the 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 way we got the name relay our youth ministry at cornerstone church is the whole mission is to pass the gospel to the next generation so the whole vision of it is it's a relay race and we're running this race and we want to hand the gospel to you guys and we want you to see you grab it and take a hold of it and own it and and trust in christ and worship christ and know christ and cherish christ and i just think the messages this weekend of how great Christ is fits so perfectly with our whole mission uh, for you guys as you graduate and as you transition to college or a job or whatever the Lord has for you for the next season of life. What's most important to me is not what you do, it's who you know in the next season, and that's Jesus Christ. And so this is our mission for you guys. I'm going to pray this for you in a second, but it's really Psalm 78. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable." I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. I I hope that's what we've done is we've told you the good news, the next generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope on God. One generation to the next, and then after you guys will come another generation that's not yet born, and after that generation, another generation, And the gospel just keeps getting passed down from one generation to the next. And so we honor you guys for coming through this, coming through Relay, for loving the gospel, cherishing the gospel, and want to pray that that would be the treasure uh, of your life for this season and for the rest of your life, that you would treasure Jesus Christ. So let me pray for you, and then we're going to thank God for you guys. So Father, I pray for these graduates. I do thank you for each one of them, how they have sought you, Lord, how they've been faithful to listen to your word, to the teaching of their parents and their pastors. They have listened attentively to the good news of Jesus Christ. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So I pray for their souls. I pray that that you would guard their faith by your Holy Spirit, that you would protect them from our our opponent, the devil, and his accusations and his lies and his temptations. Lord, guard their faith. I pray that whatever comes their way this next season and in life, Lord, that you would be with them and that Christ would be their treasure and that they would be a generation that proclaims the gospel, the wonders of the Lord to those around them, and they would proclaim the gospel to the next generation so they can tell it to the next generation, Lord. And we see this happening because you are a faithful God. So thank you for these graduates. Bless them, Lord. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can we thank God for these guys, <laughs> these graduates? And now we get the privilege of continuing to see these visions of how great and glorious God is. So let's welcome Mr. Whitaker as he comes to share with us once again tonight.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for many of you who expressed concern for Jude's finger. I do have good news. He's going to live. It's going to be good, and thank God for moms, because I basically stood there and stared at it and said, I bet that hurts, and moms jumped into action and did what moms do, and that means they took care of them, so thank you, moms. All right, I want to, um, I want to say a couple of things. I've had a number of conversations with you about the book of Revelation. Many of you have come up to me in the last 24 hours. I guess it's been. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and said, "This wow, this is really interesting. I'm learning a lot, and I think I've neglected Revelation. Or I've been afraid of Revelation. Or I just thought it was too weird, and I never dug into it. Where do I get started? What can I do to learn more about the book of Revelation? To start to see more about what's in it, and, and how, to, how to think about it, and how to benefit from it like this on my own. And so I have a couple of book recommendations for you. A couple of things to do. The, um, the very first thing is, if you have an ESV study Bible. The ESV study Bible. The notes that are in that ESV study Bible are excellent, okay? So um, not every study Bible is created equal. If uh, I like John MacArthur a lot on a lot of things, but if you have a John MacArthur study Bible or a Ryrie study Bible or a Schofield study Bible, those are coming from a different perspective about the book of Revelation. And they're going to give you lots of charts, and it's going to be like, well, the bear, that's Russia, and these locusts, those are Apache helicopters. And it just gets really weird really fast. All right, so uh, I I love them for other things. ESV Study Bible, awesome. Um, There's a book that I highly recommend for you. It's maybe 120 pages. It's not very long. Called Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman. All right, Now, if you read this book and you get excited about it and you decide to branch out and read other stuff by this guy, um, I, I don't know, he's shaky on some other things. But this book is awesome. And so if you really want some help to think through about a strategy, about how to approach the book of Revelation, and how to understand the imagery, and how to understand numbers, and how to understand the, the retelling of the same story over and over and over again from different angles, this is a book that can really, really help. I really like this book. If you want a very short, simple commentary, a good place to start is Leon Morris's book, the, I think it's just called Revelation. It's probably right up there. Revelation it is. Okay, so Leon Morris. This is uh, a pretty skinny book. It's not very big. If you, this, it's a good start. It may leave you with more questions than answers because it's so brief, but it's very easy to read, very accessible, and it's not very expensive, so it's a good place to start. If you want to go a little bit deeper, I really, really like this other commentary by Dennis Johnson called The Triumph of the Lamb. This is a great commentary. This is more what you would think of, of a commentary, maybe 300 or 350 pages. You're going to get a lot of verse-by-verse verse detail, a lot of help understanding what is going on. And I think he handles it really, really well. And he's a good writer, so there's points along the way where it's just poetic. It'll make you want to worship. It's really good. Now, if you find yourself think, this is good, I still have more questions, and I want to go one level deeper, there is a book by Greg Beal, G.K. Beal, called A Shorter Commentary on Revelation, okay? And this book, this is a sizable book. It's probably six or 700 pages, all right? It's some detail. Like, if you want to dig in on it, A Shorter Commentary on Revelation. Um, And the reason this is his shorter commentary is because he wrote the definitive commentary, the mother of all commentaries on Revelation. I'm not recommending most of you get this because it's highly technical, but it's called Revelation. And so... If you are buying, if you're like, yeah, man, I want to go for it, make sure you order his shorter commentary and not his New International Greek Testament commentary because it, it'll have, like, untranslated Greek in it and if you're, it's probably more than you want. So shorter commentary, though, really, really good. All right? So those are my recommendations. Uh, if you get down the road and you're studying and you have more questions and other, need other book recommendations, you know where to find me. So, all right. Back to Revelation. Now, I have to admit that I was torn about this message. First message, no brainer. We need to start in chapter one. Second message, no brainer. We need to do four and five. We need to see Jesus and God on the throne. Fourth message, no brainer. You'll find out tomorrow. Third message, mm, I'm really, this is tough because I really wanted to do chapters two and three. Chapters two and three are the letters to the seven churches, and they're really interesting, and there's all kinds of things that we can learn there. And one of the most important things that we learn from chapter 2 and chapter 3 is that the book of Revelation was written to actual Christians to address the problems that they were experiencing in their churches and in their culture. And so everything they read made sense to them. It's important to remember. That's part of why the whole locusts or Apache helicopters thing just doesn't work, because it had to make sense to them. They weren't Apache helicopters. That's not what's going on. So um, I really wanted to talk about that. And really to understand the whole book of Revelation, you have to read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 together. And then you got to keep your eye on chapter 4 and 5. And then you can go on and read the rest. But I don't know. We need a longer advance, I think, to make that happen. Because there's another thing that I wanted to look at. And that actually is what I decided we're going to do. So Revelation chapter 12. I wanted to do this because we are going to look at Revelation chapter 12. It's about a dragon. My grandfather was a master storyteller. He loved to tell, well, his favorite was ghost stories. He told all kinds of stories well, was like the master of timing, the punchline, everybody was rolling, but he was really good at ghost stories. And he saved his scariest stories for when we were at his creaky old lake house At night, the lighting there was never very good. There was always that one light in the kitchen that would like flicker a little bit, and gosh, pop pop. And then there was this old abandoned stairs that, that they had put flooring over. The stairs had like basically fallen apart from the cellar. So they put flooring over it, put a sofa on top of it. He would tell us these stories. And they'd get us snuggled into our sleeping bags right in front of this sofa, right over top of this abandoned stairs. He would go into the bedroom, climb out the window, go down into the cellar, and come up, start banging on the floor from underneath. That's my grandfather. He's great. So like my grandfather, I've saved the scariest part of Revelation for tonight because it's dark outside. It's actually not dark at all. I had pictured this happening and it being dark and it's actually like quite light outside. I don't know. Maybe it'll scare you later. So um, I was going to say the verses we're going to look at tonight wouldn't be nearly as scary in broad daylight. Hmm, Oh, well, it is broad daylight. So Revelation 12 is about a dragon. And I think this is one of the scariest parts of Revelation. And it's important that we read and understand this part of Revelation because we need to understand the real world that we live in. Revelation tells us what the world is really like and how to live well in the world as it really is. And there is a dragon here. It's interesting that nearly every culture in the world has some kind of dragon mythology. I don't fully understand why that is. How these these cultures that were separated by time and distance, all of them have some idea that there is this thing called a dragon. Norse mythology, the Vikings, they had dragons. Anglo-Saxons in England, they had dragons. Chinese, millennia ago, dragons. Egypt, dragons. It's prominent in literature, Beowulf. Oh, wait, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Okay, Beowulf was killed by a dragon. St. George fought a dragon. The Hobbit, Harry Potter. Even in the Bible, in the book of Job at the end, remember this weird beast, Leviathan, right? Well, when ancient Hebrew scholars went and translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, you know the Greek word they chose for Leviathan? Dracon. Sound familiar? Drachon, the Leviathan. So picture a dragon with me for a moment, right? We've talked about how revelation is about imagination. you got to use your imagination. We need to picture this. Not a cartoon dragon. None of this, I don't know if you guys were raised on, like, dragon Tales and that nonsense. No, but, like, a legit dragon, right? <laughs> what a dumb show. Not that I ever showed it to my kids. Oh, son. I'm going to dislocate that other finger. <laughs> All right. Not on purpose. All right, picture a dragon with me, a real dragon, right? A monstrous beast, huge. These things are big. Eagle-eyed, razor-sharp fangs, plated with iron-hard scales, a ridge of spikes down its back, and it breathes fire. Part of what makes a dragon so fearsome, I think, part of what makes them scary is that it's a hybrid creature, that takes the strongest, the best, or maybe depending on how you look at it, the worst features of other animals and combines them into one. The, the serpentine movements of a snake. Don't you hate seeing that? Like out in the wild? Man, it just makes you jump back. It, me, anyway. I'm not one of those like grab snake kind of people. The, the flight and the speed and the vision of an eagle. The strength of a bear or a lion. The jaws and armor of a crocodile. And maybe the scariest The intelligence of a human, inquisitive, creative, relentless, and it breathes fire. And it's coming for you. (laughs) I didn't really mean that to be funny. (laughs) So let's look at Revelation 12. Now, I'm going to read Revelation 12. Before I do, I want to give you a real quick cast of characters. Remember, Highly symbolic language here. And so this is going to seem weird because there's a woman and she gives birth and there's a baby and then there's like people of God. So what is going on here? The woman, there's a woman here that is about to have a baby and the woman is the Old Testament people of God. If we had more time, I would take the time and show you how I know that's true. But all right, the old, the the, the woman here, the Old Testament people of God and the child that she gives birth to is the Messiah, is Jesus Christ, okay? Okay. And then there are our brothers in verse 10, the rest, of, the rest of the woman's offspring. So the woman has this one, this male this son, this male child. The rest of her offspring then, that is the church, the New Testament era people of God. So I just want you to know kind of who's who and what's going on here. Just helps to understand the story. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 12, and then we're going to talk about it. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word teaches us about what the world is really like and how to live well in light of what this world is really like. Help us tonight to understand the enemy of our souls and to see how to overcome him by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems." His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. (laughs) This is God's Word. This is God's Word to us. This is as much God's Word to us as the Sermon on the Mount. In Proverbs, in Psalm 23, and Genesis 1, this is God's Word to us. This chapter is meant to feed us, to nourish our souls and inform our minds and strengthen our faith. Let's see how it does this. So three points. I'm going to make three points from this passage tonight. The first is this. There is a dragon on the loose. Point one, there is a dragon on the loose, and you could add to that, and he wants to destroy you. There is a dragon on the loose, and he wants to destroy you. Revelation tells us about this dragon, but doesn't really give us that much to go on about his physical features. Most of the description that I gave you just a moment ago, as I was describing, here's this this image I got mainly from Job and from Beowulf. But Revelation tells us the dragon is red. It's the color of blood and oppression and tyranny. The dragon is huge. With one swipe of its tail, it swept down stars, probably referring to one-third of the angelic beings who followed Satan and became what we would now call demons. And this dragon has seven heads, Here's something you don't find very often in dragon mythology, a seven-headed dragon with with ten horns and seven diadems. I'm not sure how this is supposed to work. Are like maybe six of the heads have one horn and the last one has the rest of the horns or what? It doesn't really matter. The point is the seven heads, it's highly intelligent. It represents, well, nearly perfect. Seven is a number of perfection, so it represents a, an almost perfect knowledge, but only God has perfect knowledge, so this is a counterfeit. And ten horns symbolize strength. And the diadems, that's just a fancy word for crowns. Ten crowns on its head, which means he works his power on the earth through human agency, through kings and through governments, through agents, through, uh, through armies, through corporations. But the focus of Revelation is not on the physical description of the dragon. That's not the main thing here, right? John is not setting out to give us a a, a comprehensive picture of this dragon that we could now go draw a sketch of it. Instead, he focuses on what the dragon does and what the dragon wants. We learn a lot about the dragon from this description in chapter 12, verse 9. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. These titles, these tell us something about the dragon. First, he is the great dragon. In other words, he is the, the definitive dragon, the ultimate dragon, the pattern for all other dragons. And he is the ancient serpent. Throughout dragon mythology in every part of the world, dragons, and serpents are very closely related. Well, ancient serpent, right? As Christians, we know the story. What is supposed to come to mind there? Of course, Genesis chapter three the serpent who shows up in the garden and tempts Eve and Adam to take the apple and re- rebel and, and defy God. And so this is the one responsible for bringing sin into the world. And he's called the devil. This is a Greek word, diabolos. It's where we get the English word diabolical. You ever heard that word diabolical? We don't use it very often because it's so serious. It means devil. Well, the word really means slanderer. That word diabolos, it means slanderer. The dragon lies. That is what the dragon does. His name means liar. From the very first, the serpent lied to Eve. Remember that? Did God really say he's a liar and a deceiver? And he is Satan. Satan is a name that means the adversary, the enemy. He's the enemy of God and all those who belong to him. And what does Satan want? What does Satan want? What does this dragon who has been thrown down to earth and is powerful and relentless, what does he want? He wants to destroy you. So I, I can admit, we read this, you think, man, there's a dragon, that's scary. But the connection between this dragon thinking, okay, there's a dragon, like, I don't know, out in the world somewhere, and I guess he's some kind of spiritual dragon because nobody's ever really seen him. Maybe. Maybe that's why all these cultures have dragon mythology, though. Maybe somebody did see them. But we don't see them today. What, what, what is that, how does that connect to us in Tennessee? Top of a bluff on Friday evening. It seems kind of remote, right? I mean, it, yeah, it sounds bad. This is a threat. This sounds dangerous. But it's big and it's bad, but it's vague. It seems kind of distant. Well, it helps us to remember, no, what John is trying to do here is to give us a vision of this is the way the world really is. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you're not aware of it all the time doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And just because you've never laid eyes on this dragon doesn't mean it isn't coming for you. In fact, 1 Peter verse 5, chapter five verse 8 He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he wants to destroy you by deceiving you. This dragon destroys through deception. There are a thousand different ways he does this. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And more than anything, he tells lies about God. So, do you want to know how the devil, how this dragon is on the loose today? There are lies abroad. He has been sowing lies, sprinkling lies, whispering lies, even yelling lies into the world, and people believe them. He lied to Eve. He told Eve, God isn't good, and he lies to you. He wants you to believe the lie that, that God doesn't see. But you can go sin, and it's not a big deal. It's not hurting anybody. It's often private. God doesn't see. And if he sees, he doesn't care. His job is forgiving sin. Even if he cares, he's, he's not going to do anything. He won't act on it. And even if he does act on it, I mean, it won't be that bad. And even if it is bad, well, it won't last that long. Satan wants you to believe lies about sin and consequences, lies about God, lies about the way the world really is. The dragon's deception is a strategy of desperation. So this dragon is on the loose and he wants to destroy you and the way he's going to try to do it is by deceiving you. And so this is why it's so important that we read our Bibles, that we know what is the truth, that we know who Jesus is and what he is like and what he has come to do, that we know why God has saved Christians in the world to spread the gospel to the world, to band together in the church that we might strengthen one another and, and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another how badly we need the church. Satan tells lies about all of these things to scatter us, and to discourage us, and ultimately to destroy us. And so the evil that we see in the world right now is the work of the dragon's deception. And believe it or not, this is restrained. It says if we, if we were to flip over to chapter 20, we would see there that this, when Satan was cast down, he was bound, he was chained. His strength and his power has been limited. You think the world is bad as it is now imagine if you were set loose if you were not restrained and bound by the lamb The evil we see in this world it is restrained evil because the dragon has already lost the war So if you're taking notes that's the second point the dragon has lost the war but keeps making war The dragon started a war. He picked a fight, and he lost that fight. He's pinned to the ground, but he's still swinging. The dragon has lost the war but keeps making war. Every time the dragon comes up in these verses, he is seeking to destroy. Every time he shows up in chapter 12, he is opposing God and his people. So this begins in chapter 12, verse 4. It says, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The dragon wanted to devour the Messiah. And he tried hard, and he almost succeeded. Do you remember what happened when the wise men show up and King Herod hears that there is a Messiah, that there's a new king that has been born, somebody who's going to take his throne? He says, kill them all. All those babies, all those baby boys, two years and younger, kill them. That's the dragon waiting to destroy the child that is born. 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. So Michael is the archangel. He is the greatest of angels. He is like the, the, the general of angels, right? He is the boss. He is the dude. And his angelic beings, his army, fight against the dragons and his demons. I wonder what that looked like. Where did this happen? When? How? Was this like in outer space? Was it just in heaven and spiritual? Was it on earth? Like what went on here? There is no, like Hollywood has nothing on this. Whatever went on. And there are some pretty cool special effects out there. But there's no wizard battle that can compare to this. No Jedi battle that can compare to this. There are no special forces battle that can compare to this. All of heaven is a battlefield, and the dragon is defeated and thrown down. And he keeps making war. Look at verse 13. When the dragon sees that he has lost the war in heaven, he's like, I'm not done yet. He tries to continue the war on earth. He pursues the woman. Look at verse verse 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of an angel, I'm sorry, of a great eagle, so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. The serpent poured water out, this is weird, this is a dragon that breathes water and not fire. He poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and swallowed the river that the dragon has poured from his mouth. All of creation gets involved in this cosmic war. It is a war that happens on a heavenly battlefield and an earthly battlefield. Satan is relentless and he will not stop until he can destroy his enemies. And then verse 17 The very end of the chapter, the woman, excuse me, the dragon becomes furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Well, that's us. That's the church. That's Christians. The rest of her offspring are Christians throughout the church age. All Christians in every church, in every country, in every place for all time between Jesus rising to heaven and his eventual return. The dragon loses the war in heaven. He's stymied in his war against the woman. All he has left is to make war against the rest of the woman's offspring, against the church. This is the way the world really is. So it's good that we're prepared for this. This is what is going on right now. This chapter gives us a picture of what the world is really like between the two comings of Jesus. The first coming, his ministry, his life, his death, His resurrection and his ascension. First coming, Jesus went, but he's coming back. Second coming. All of the time in between, this is what the world is like. I don't think you have to look very hard out there in the world to see the dragon's war against the lamb and his people. When we see the hate and the animosity that are in the world, that's the dragon making war. When people are divided over race, ethnicity, skin color, that is the dragon-making war. When people are divided over nationalistic grounds and you have whole nations gearing up to attack one another, that is the dragon-making war. When advertising and social media and movies and music descend into more and more disgusting forms of pornography and exploitation, that is the dragon-making war. All around us, every day in every city, there is opposition to the gospel. More and more, our culture is turning to say, no, it's not okay for you to talk about Jesus Christ. It's not okay for you to believe in that, that for freedom Christ has set you free. It's not okay to talk about the Bible in this country. More and more, we see that the dragon is making war. So, There's two ways we need to think about this. Two takeaways here. First, don't be surprised when you encounter this war. Don't be surprised. We live in a battle zone. We live in the, there is no demilitarized zone on this planet. We live in a war zone and some of that are just the daily effects of sin that we feel. Everything from cancer and COVID-19 to acne and dislocated fingers We are feeling the effects of living in a fallen world. And it's fallen because the dragon is making war. And second, we should also take away from this that we ought not lose hope. Don't be surprised, but don't lose hope. Because this dragon is waging war, but he has already lost the war. The dragon is dangerous and subtle and fearsome, but he will not ultimately be victorious. There's a quotation by Greg Beale, the shorter commentary that I mentioned before. He says this, "This is one of the major themes of the book of Revelation. The suffering of Christians is a sign not of Satan's victory, but of the saints' victory over Satan." Okay? Do you follow? The presence of suffering in this life is not a sign of Satan's victory. It's a sign of the saints' victory over Satan because of their belief in the triumph of the cross with which their sufferings identify them. In other words, look, if you weren't on Jesus' side, Satan doesn't care. He's going to leave you alone. If you are on Jesus' side, Satan is coming for you. And if you experience then that opposition, then you must be doing something right. The suffering that we encounter in this world puts us in alignment with Jesus Christ. And that suffering is a sign not of Satan's victory, but of the victory of the saints. And so the dragon is making war, but the dragon has lost the war. And not only that, the followers of the lamb can overcome the dragon. So if you're taking notes, third point, the followers of the lamb can overcome the dragon. This is, I think, the most comforting and the most hopeful and the most optimistic thing about Revelation is that while on this earth, while we are in the midst of this battle zone, while we are being shot at and attacked by this fiery serpent The ancient serpent, the dragon, the followers of the lamb overcome the dragon. We are not expendable foot soldiers. We are not mere pawns being pushed forward that a rook is going to sweep in and take. That's not how this works. We can overcome the dragon. How do you conquer a dragon? (laughs) Think about that for a minute. Think about the descriptions of a dragon, the depictions of de- of dragons that you've read about or seen in movies. How do you do it? Do you need, well, maybe you need an, a big iron arrow and a crossbow, and there needs to be, you know, a, a conveniently placed chink in the armor sort of right over the dragon's heart. That would help a lot, but you got to hit it. It's, you only get one shot, man, you better nail it. Well, maybe you need some kind of fireproof suit <laughs> and a really big sword. Well, no, we... Well, it helps that we are called to defeat a dragon that has already been defeated. The followers of the Lamb can overcome the dragon because the dragon has already been overcome, right? Remember, back up to 7. Ch- uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels against the dragon and his angels. And look what happens. Verse 9, the great, well, verse 8. He was defeated. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, and all of his angels were thrown down with him. So this world we live in, this dragon, has already been conquered, already been defeated. He lost the cosmic war. Now, what's interesting about this, you read that far and you think, man, this angel, Michael, he got it done. He and these other angels, they were brave, they were fierce, they had their swords out, and they were hacking away. They beat this serpent, and they kicked him out. But wait. Wait, wait, wait. Look who gets credit for the victory. Hold on a second. There's more to this story. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. Yes, Michael was the general, and angels, this big army, are with him. But who gets credit for the victory It is the authority of his Christ. It's because Jesus died on the cross. That moment, there was a moment when Jesus died on his cross. That was the moment that appeared to be the ultimate defeat. Satan, this dragon, and I'm sure all his legions of demons are laughing. They're dancing. They're thinking, we did it. We slayed the lamb. That was the moment when Jesus planted his flag and said, I have overcome death. I have defeated the dragon. That was the moment when the dragon was thrown down from heaven and bound, defeated for good. So here it is. That is how you defeat your dragon. The way to defeat a dragon is you follow the lamb who has already defeated the dragon. If you want to overcome, you need to be with the one who has overcome. Look at verse 11 now. They, that's all Christians, the offspring of this woman, all Christians, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So Jesus conquered the dragon. And then it says they have conquered him. They. Look, if you are a Christian, they is you. You, you have conquered him. You can conquer him. You will conquer him because the lamb conquered him. But how will it be? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? Well, first, conquering by the blood of the lamb means that Satan's main weapon has been destroyed. Satan is an accuser. He says to God, this is what Satan does. Picture a courtroom. Satan says to God, Those people right there, they are sinners. And you are holy and you should punish them. He accuses Christians before the throne. He says, they don't deserve your grace. They turn their back on you. They're a race of rebels. Get rid of them. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. And now we have forgiveness. So we overcome the dragon By coming to Jesus and receiving his forgiveness. All those sins that the dragon wants to accuse us of. John says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Jesus has defanged the dragon. He has taken from him the ability to accuse us before God. And second, it says that they conquer by the word of their testimony. This means more than, say, giving a testimony. Like some of you have given testimonies. Maybe it's your baptism. Maybe it's your school. Maybe you stood up at a church and said how great advance was or something like that. This is more than that. This means to publicly testify, to stand up and say, I am with the Lamb. This might mean that that with our words, we are not ashamed at school or at work to say, no, I'm a Christian. To actually say to another person, I am a Christian, and I would prefer if you didn't tell those kind of jokes or talk about women like that. I would prefer if you didn't gossip about that person because I'm a Christian and I don't do that. It might mean having the courage to share the gospel with a neighbor or a cousin or somebody at school who doesn't know the Lord. The word of our testimony is also in our actions. This takes us right back to where we began about obedience. We give a testimony to the lamb and conquer the dragon every time we obey. Did you realize there is this much at stake in your obedience? When you choose to be respectful to your mom, you are taking out your sword and joining in a cosmic battle to overcome the dragon. When you choose to tell the truth, when you choose not to draw attention to yourself in a group of people, when you choose to serve others, when you choose to lay down your life, you are taking up weapons in this cosmic battle to overcome the dragon. You are putting on a uniform as a foot soldier in this cosmic war, overcoming him, by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. And then it says in verse 11, not only that, so they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Now, this is talking about martyrdom. I trust you all know what martyrdom is. Martyrdom is when somebody, because they stand up and they say, I am with Christ people or a government somebody who hates jesus kills that person for their faith john is saying there will be christians who will lose their lives in the battle against the dragon and that has happened many many times throughout the history of the church it's happened many many times throughout the world it happens today it is still happening in many places today We pray, it doesn't come to that in our country, and we pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries that they would be protected, that God would preserve them, but most of all, that he would help them to stay faithful and maintain the word of their testimony by the blood of the Lamb. But you don't have to die to love not your life. I love that phrase, they loved not their lives even unto death. You don't have to die to love not your life. It may come to that. I don't know. I pray it doesn't. But some of you, some of you may be loving your lives. And for some of you, maybe that is what is keeping you from becoming a Christian and following Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a love of reputation. You love being the center of attention. You love being liked. Maybe you love your life more than the lamb. Maybe you like stuff. Maybe you're thinking about the next thing you could buy, the stuff you have, the stuff you want. Maybe that's how you love your life more than the lamb. Maybe you like success. You're a good student, a good athlete. You're good with people. You're good at your job. Your reputation with that is what is most important to you. Maybe that's how you love your life more than the lamb. One of the marks of someone who is truly following Christ is they're willing to take any and every part of their life and hand it over and to say, I am willing to give this up to follow Jesus Christ. Whatever it costs, Whatever it means, whatever I have to give up, whatever I lose, none of it, nothing in this world is worth hanging on to and losing Christ. They love not their lives, even unto death. Now, some of us, we might think, yeah, well, if it comes to that, you know what, I would be strong. I would take a stand. Kill me if you must. And maybe we would. I hope so. I hope that I would have that kind of courage if it came to that. It takes another kind of courage to deny yourself each day. To say, you know what, I'm not going to hit the snooze another time. I'm going to get up so that I have time to read my Bible. i got a big test coming up next week. I need to pray. My dad has a job interview tomorrow. I need to pray. I need help to overcome temptation. I need to pray. It takes... Daily decisions to say, you know, I'm going to be kind. How can I sacrifice for my little sister today? Who maybe is annoying sometimes, but you know, I can serve her because she's made in the image of God. She's been given to me as a gift. Those are ways we lay down our lives. There are a thousand ways we do this. And I think this could be a point of reference. Families, this could be a point of reference. How could you love not your life even unto death today? How can you lay down your life? Without martyrdom, without having to die for it, how could you die to it? How could you die to your own life today? Those who conquer the dragon are those who love not their lives, even unto death. They are willing to sacrifice and give up anything to follow Jesus. I thought about giving this message the title, How to Chain Your Dragon. seemed a little cheeky. The fact is, the dragon has already been chained. He is at war, and he hates the lamb and all those who follow, the, the, who, who follow the, the lamb, but he has already been restrained. And so Revelation 12, this chapter gives us eyes to see the way the world really is. There is a dragon on the loose. He has lost the war, but he keeps making the war. But we can overcome him because the lamb has overcome the dragon. The lamb has defeated the dragon. By his blood, the dragon has been thrown down. And it gives us faith to know that when we fight by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, we will conquer and overcome the dragon because the lamb has overcome for us. So let's pray and ask for God's help to overcome this dragon. Father in heaven, Thank you for this book that is so realistic, helps us to understand what is going on out there, that there is a dragon on the loose, there is a dragon in the world, and he is against us, he hates us, he desires more than anything our destruction, because he's already lost the war, he's already been thrown down, you've defeated him by your blood, and he's coming for us. And so Father, we pray that you would help us to overcome him as you have overcome him. Let us not be deceived. Let us not give in to the lies of this world. Let us not be tricked or lured away or enticed. Let us believe the truth of your word. Anchor our hope and our faith in it. May it tell us what you are like and what you have come to do through Jesus. May it help us to understand how we have been called to live and help us to know how to overcome through our testimony and through our obedience. Make us a people who are joyfully obedient. Let us be glad to obey that we might strike another blow against this ancient enemy, the dragon. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who defeated the dragon. And because of that, we love him with all our hearts. Amen. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.